Welcome to the Wildscast. Lori Palatnik is a writer and Jewish educator who has appeared on television and radio. She's the founding director of the Jewish Women's Renaissance Project, an international initiative that brings thousands of women to Israel each year from 18 different countries on highly subsidized programs to inspire them with the beauty and wisdom of their heritage. Welcome, Lori Palatnik. I am so excited to begin a another trifecta, another three-part series, uh, this time with some great women Jewish leaders. Uh, Lori Palatnik is the founding director of Momentum, which was formerly J- a JWRP. She has brought thousands of moms, and now their husbands, to Israel. She's a world-renowned Jewish educator, speaker, writer, media personality, lecturing all over the world. There are four amazing books that Lori has written, Friday Night and Beyond, Gossip, Remember My Soul, Turn Your Husband Into Your Soulmate, great title. And um, Lori was named uh, one of the 10 women to watch by Jewish Women International and one of the most outstanding Jewish American women of our time by Hadassah. Uh, Lori recently made Aliyah, now lives with her husband in Jerusalem with three out of her five kids are over there. Welcome, Lori Palatnik. What an honor. Thank you. A pleasure, Rabbi. Thank you for having me. Such an honor, such as a good for us, and I'm so glad we're starting with you. Tell us a little of your background. Um, what was your background Jewishly? Did you grow up observant? Did your parents sort of feed you this, you know, you need, you need to go out and change the world, bring everybody to Israel? What, what's, tell us a little about your background. Well, I grew up in Toronto. Um, I was one of four kids and went to public school. We were Jewish, but my brother's bar mitzvahs were more bar than mitzvah. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so it wasn't a big factor in our lives being Jewish. We knew we were Jewish. Hanukkah, dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. The Passover Seder got shorter and shorter every year. The joke at our Seder was there weren't just four cups at the table. There were five cups because the fifth cup was the Stanley Cup. Because before <laughs> expansion, the playoffs were always around the, the Seder. So there weren't four questions, there were five questions. The fifth question was, what's the score? What's the score? What's the score? So we wanted to finish it up because the national religion in in Canada really is hockey. So that's really how I grew up. And it really wasn't until my, out of four kids, my younger sister um, started getting involved in Jewish life. And it seemed like overnight she went from Rocky Horror Picture Show to keeping, keeping Shabbos. But it wasn't so overnight, like they, as I learned later. But it seemed like us. Like if you would have listed all the crazy things that could have happened in our family, this wouldn't have even made the list. And she went off to Israel and she came back like very religious. And so it was like bizarre to us. So when I went, I, I was working in advertising. I studied communications in, in college and I, I worked in advertising. I always say I'm still in advertising. I just have a better product now. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so when I were I I had won a national commercial for a Christmas commercial that I wrote, a national award for a Christmas commercial. Jews are very good about Christmas, you know, Irving Berlin. I'm yeah, we wrote all the songs. We wrote all the songs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we have a nice take on Christmas. So I wrote uh it, it was a commercial. It, it was it was uh you know shopping and in a in a, in a, in a for the, the town the town of, uh, of Chatham, Ontario, you know, and it was about shopping there at Christmas time. And it won a national commercial, national award, I mean, for a commercial, and which was a big deal. It was a national award and I was just early on in my career. And I decided, you know what? I got my degree, I got my my award, I got my my experience. I'm not married, I don't have a mortgage, there's no kids. This is my time. Uh, my mother raised us with a lot of art and culture growing up and I wanted to see the Mona Lisa and the Pissero and the Renoir. So off I went, uh, got my backpack and went off to Europe. And this was not a time people were doing that. This was um, this was a time when my friends were going back to get their MBAs, but I decided to go see the world. And you under very strange old, circumstances. How, how old are you at this time about? Like where? where early tw- uh, like early 20s, early 20s, okay. early 20s. And I, I decided to, um, under very strange circumstances, it's too long a story to tell, but I ended up in Israel. It was God was like you over here. We have something to talk about. And when I was in Israel, I had all these feelings. I didn't. My sister was not living there at the time. She had already studied there and had come back to Toronto. And I had all these like very mixed feelings about my Judaism. And I then I had all these crazy feelings when I was in Israel and I didn't understand what I was feeling. And I just felt like if I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. So I left because it didn't make any sense. 
Mm-hmm. And I went back through Europe and I was writing a, an article for a Canadian magazine about Canadian women who live abroad, went back to Canada, moved to Ottawa, the capital of Canada, and worked in public relations for McDonald's restaurants. And one year later, do you see the, the, you see the theme, right? Okay, the Christmas commercial, McDonald's restaurants, Robinson, <laughs> like it's a very common tale. Yeah. So, uh, so, so after uh, about a year later, I got something in the mail. Somebody I, I had met in Israel remembered me, put me on a list, and I came back for a six-week program uh, called the Jerusalem Fellowships. And I'm telling you, I really had, in uh, the year that I had left, I had gone through all these beautiful countries, but I couldn't get Israel out of my mind. And it seemed like every time I turned on the TV or opened up a book or a newspaper, it was either about Israel or the Jewish people. It was probably there all along, but I never noticed it. And so I had a chance to go back. This was long before Jerusalem, long before uh, Birthright. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went, I went back to, and it was like 120 of us. And about four weeks into the six-week program, I had the same feelings. Like, oh, if I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. I want to live here forever. But this time it made sense. Because it had something to do with the destiny of the Jewish people and our role in the world. And I'm an idealist, and it resonated with me. I had a lot of questions and a lot of issues to work out. So I decided to just keep pushing off, going back week after week after week until finally I just didn't go back. And I stayed and I studied for about a year and a half, finally went back and came back again. I went back for the summer, came back, and then I met my husband. And he's from Chicago. He's a... He was an Asia Torah rabbi at the time. Wow. And we, yeah. And so we planned to live in Israel forever. We got married, but God had other plans. And we were out. We we went to Toronto to be part of the Jewish community there for about three years. We made a three-year commitment. And 13 years later, we're still there. We started the Village Shul. It's a, an outreach oh, sure, in, in sure. Toronto. Right. So, but yeah, before, it started. before you continue to move on, so is it fair to say that Israel, I mean, obviously your sister and her transformation, her spiritual um, aha, if you will, was a big influence, but Israel seemed to be the clincher for you. Yeah. So what with my sister, it brought, it made Judaism a factor in our lives, in our family. Mm-hmm. It was negative. It was very negative, a very, but at least it was there. Mm-hmm. It was there. Um, so going to Israel was huge for me, huge. Mm-hmm. It was a profound, there was no way. And, and that's really sort of planted the seeds for what I do now with momentum because really like eight days in Israel, you can't do the same. You can have more impact in eight days than you can have in eight years in, uh, in the diaspora. It's just, it's magical if, here. If you had to, Laurie, if you had to articulate that, cause I'm always looking, you know, sometimes people can get a little cynical about, you know, the birthright trip. What are you going to really do in eight or 10 days? What is it about, coming to israel or you can be very personal what is what was it for you that you know obviously your sister's transformation had a big impact but what seemed to do it for you was israel and you've devoted your life to bringing so many other people to like oh 15 000, i'm told to israel well wait, you it's over twenty thousand now have oh, been to israel from 32 countries uh, in partnership with the ministry of diaspora affairs it's really been incredible and like you said, like when I tell my story, it, all, it makes makes me realize like how those seeds of something that started 13 years ago, the momentum started 13 years ago, how those seeds were planted um, way back when in yeah. 1985, you know, and I really see. So what is it? So my husband uh, told me the following uh, mashal uh, parable uh, metaphor. He said that if you... If somebody uh, gives you a um, a cactus, you know, in those little pots, and you put it on your windowsill, you know, the little cactus. So, how much does that cactus grow every year? It's like like barely a centimeter. That same cactus in Arizona is eight feet tall. Mm. Why? Because it's in its home environment. Your soul, your neshama, can only get so big in the diaspora, and in Israel, it can be eight feet tall. Wow. Because it's wow. Well, you know what? You gave me a lot of encouragement because, you know, we have an MGE takes two groups every summer to Israel. It's the highlight of what we do. We're about to go on a ski retreat this weekend and we do a spring retreat, but there's nothing that compares 
to going to Israel and we've been deprived of it for two summers already. And, you know, and it's a big trip. It's expensive. And, you know, and, 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 and it's a wonder when, when the birth writers and Michael Steinhardt and all these guys got together, they didn't say, let's bring them to Italy or, you know, see the beautiful, um, sites in Italy or, or other parts of Europe. They said, Israel, there's just something magical. Uh, and I yeah. think you put it beautifully. Your soul can only get to where it can get as big as it can become in Israel itself. So, so tell us a little about, for those who may not know, uh, it was formerly called Jewish Women's Renaissance Project. It's now called Momentum. Tell us, um, tell us what it is. <laughs> okay, so um, it started in 2008. I invited seven other women from the Washington, D.C. area to go away with me to think of a home run idea for the Jewish people. Why? Because I was traveling around. I became a speaker in the Jewish world. And as you know, there's a lot of rabbis. We love you guys. <laughs> we love rabbis so much we marry them. But uh, they're, they, women need women, female role models. Because there was a lot of things when I was working out my issues that I couldn't hear from a man. Like, I'm sorry, like I'm not going to hear it from them. That yeah. you really need those role models and those mentors. And you need to hear and work out certain issues uh, from a woman. So I became, I started doing video blogs and, and writing books. And I was traveling around the world, you know, speaking because there's not a lot of, you know, like we get, a, well, I get to be the scholar in residence at, at some of these fancy Pesach getaways because they always want like a token woman, you know, there's always like rabbi, 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 and a woman. So th those are times where I don't mind being the token woman because we get to go away to cool places. So I was traveling around and I would get these crazy job offers. I, I would come home and tell my, and my husband, I would tell my husband, you want to be the chief rabbi of Costa Rica? Comes with maids. And he's like, I don't speak Spanish. I'm like, Yako, you're smart. You can learn Spanish. Maids, a driver, a house. They're offering us the world. So obviously we're not moving to Costa Rica and we're not moving to Johannesburg and we're not moving to Atlanta. Right. But I couldn't just come and speak in these communities and walk away because they're telling me, and I saw that the communities were going in the wrong direction in terms of growth. And they were having a lot of issues. And I knew from our work in decades in Jewish communal work, it's the women. It's the women. If you if you get the women, they'll bring in the family. Like yep. it's just smart. It's 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 like you you know you get the husband, you get the husband, you get the you know the twenty year old boy, you got the twenty year old son. Okay, but there's a fourteen year old sister and a seventeen year old brother, and um, you get the mom, you get the family. Yeah, yeah. So I I just wanted them to I just wanted to take their women, like give me your women, but I couldn't, like I, and I couldn't move to there. So what was I going to do? So when we went away, I asked these seven other women who are really like, uh, they were from like a real spectrum, like from reform, conservative, orthodox, um, Democrat, Republican, different stages of life. And I wanted everybody's voice. And I said, you know, we, there's a problem and we can, we have a choice. We can circle the wagons and try to just protect and save our own families, or we can be agents of change. And they decided to be agents of change. And we went through a process to get in touch with our personal core values. And what would our life look like if we lived them? What would our families look like? What would our communities look like? What would the Jewish people look like? What would the world look like? And we shared and found the, the, the congruence, like the, the, the values that we all share, which are really Torah-based values. And we decided to establish an organization. At the time, it was called the Jewish Women's Renaissance Project, the JWRP. And only when we did that work and, and we created a mission statement and agonized over every word, only after that work did we, did we strategize on what project would bring this to fruition. Because most of the time, when over the many years of my work in Jewish communal work, usually you walk into the room for a meeting about an idea and, um, and you're invited in and usually everybody looks the same. Everybody kind of votes the same. Everybody kind of like their Shabbat looks the same. And usually you walk in and this is the project, this is the idea, and we want your help. It, but this was different. We laid the foundation of our values and, our, and, and the people in the room did not look the same. And we found what we could, could agree on and build on. And only then did we, did we start brainstorming on projects that could bring this to, to, to light. And I really believe that bracha, that tremendous blessing came from above because we went through this process Wow. of really creating a foundation to build on. And we came up with many ideas and three ideas rose to the top. We divided up 
uh, on the way home, we had, uh, we had gone away actually to Utah to, for this uh, retreat to talk about it. We're called the Utah Eight because one of the women owns a gorgeous place in Utah. Because okay. I had this sense like we, we had to go away in order to really right. and get yeah. out of our lives in order to come to something. And plus, when you're there in Utah, I don't know if you've ever been there. Yeah, it's cool. The mountains, the water, it's like yeah. you feel Hashem's glory. Like it lifts you. It lifts you. And you feel this sense of like, I don't know, like anything, anything is possible. And at the time, my, our rabbi, Rabbi Noah Feinberg, was dying. And he was never very impressed with anything we did. I'm just going to jump in. Those of you listening who may not be familiar with Noah Weinberg, of blessed memory was the uh, founder in the Rosh Hashiva of Eish HaTorah, which is a worldwide Jewish outreach program. Continue, please. Yeah. Right. So our so our so he was dying at the time, and he was never impressed with anything we did over the years. Like like we did great things. Like God, thank God. Like you know the village school in Toronto and all the things that we did. But uh, it was kind of like okay, you got on base. Where's the home run? Where's the home run? You made the village school, make a hundred village schools. Okay. So it was, you know, because really it's, if you look at the Pew Report and you see what's happening empirically, like we're, we're losing the yeah. Jewish people, we're, yeah. we're losing. So where's that breakthrough? Where's that home run? So that's what I was looking for. Like I never gave up, like where's the home run? So even though I don't work for Torah, um, I really, the values that Rabbi Weinberg, Rabbi Noah gave us and the, the call to action, I never, ever gave up on ever, ever, ever. So that's so so we when we came up with these ideas this idea this birthright for moms okay this this idea of taking women out of their lives and bringing them to israel in partnership with organizations on the ground coming together bringing uh, diverse organizations together that they could also agree and one thing that they can agree on is the mother is the influencer like don okay everybody knows she is the most important person in the family. She's the one who decides schools, who decides who we socialize with, where we live. And yet she was the most underserved yeah. until now. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. That is, that is incredible. I mean, I, um, how do you measure success? I mean, I, I personally had the honor of teaching a number of uh, returnees and they're excited, you know. Um, but I also have a very cynical uncle who once said to me, he says, Mark, you know, I love the work you're doing over there. You know, he says, but this birthright thing, you know, about the same time the tan starts to wear off from their 10 days in, in, in Israel, about the same time that everything else they got. So how do you keep momentum, if you will? Yes. How do you keep people pumped? And because you've got yeah. some very quality um, women, I've, I've taught a couple of model satyrs in classes here in Manhattan, super impressed with the quality of the people you've brought to Israel. Uh, how do you keep them growing? And in, uh, obviously they're infiltrated within their families, which is brilliant. Um, but, but how do you then continue to affect change down the road? Okay. So it's a great question. Um, so we, the, the, the advantage that we have over birthright are two things. Number one, their constituency is very fl fluid. They, they're taking kids at a certain stage of their life, at a certain age, having, they're giving them an incredible experience, but they go back and scatter. They go back and scatter. They scatter all over the country. So follow-up is very, very challenging for them. And they'll say that, the follow-up is very challenging. The advantage that we have is our women are at a very mature stage of life. They're taking things very seriously. They have a lot on the line. Their marriages, their children. There's a lot on the line. Yeah. Like that, I, we have tour guides who say that they won't tour, they won't guide for birthright. They, they said the kids are plugged in. They're not even listening to them. Our women are at the edge of their seat with their hands up, like asking questions. They're 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 hungry and thirsty for wisdom because they know there there's a lot on the line. Whereas these other kids are like, you know, whatever, you know. Um, They've got, they're, they're at a different stage of life. The advantage we also have is that these women are coming from the same community, having a shared profound experience and going back to the same community and everything, because we don't take individuals, we only take, we have partner organizations. We have over 250 partner organizations around the world. And those organizations are the ones who recruit the women, staff the buses and go back and drive the follow-up. We have a one-year follow-up. I actually have, um, oh. So, so the first thing, which is a big difference, because the, the first difference you 
articulated is just in the event itself. In other words, the women are sitting right, in the seats. The birthright kids are a little less, you know, checked in, maybe a little more checked out. But because the birth yeah, the- kids are coming from all over and they're going back to all over, as opposed to the momentum groups for women are coming from one neighborhood, one shuna, if you will. Yeah. And then they're going to be coming back and continue to be followed up with, I guess, by the madrichim, by the uh, your um, the mentors, by the, by the organize the local organizations. And we right. provide this curriculum. This this just mm-hmm. came out. It's called the Year of Growth. When the women sign up, they don't sign up for a trip. They sign up for one year momentum journey. Mm-hmm. The trip is an integral part. Like it's a very very important part. They have three meetings before the trip. They have the trip itself which opens them up, but it's really, the last day of the trip is the first day of their journey. It's really what, how you take it back. And we have the advantage of, again, their stage of life, they're more mature. They have to have children at home under the age of 18. And they're going back together and women bond. Women do things together. Like they go to the bathroom in the restaurant together. <laughs> like we do things together and we share it. That, does, and, that doesn't end with high school. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. So, so, you know, I always say like, if you're out with your, I, I, I explained to guys, I said, if you're out with your wife and you're with two other couples and, and the women, one woman says, I'm going to the bathroom. She says to the other women, like, you want to go, I'm going to the bathroom. You want to go? And they all go together. If a guy did that, it would be very weird. Okay. So it's just part of like, yeah, give me a few it, minutes. It's, part, <laughs> <laughs> it's part of, of recognizing that men and women are different and, and capitalizing on that. So people say, like, how do you fill the buses? Like, how do you do this? Like, are, are you kidding? Like, we don't have to advertise. The women, women talk, women share. Women are posting. By the time they get back, their best friend, their sister-in-law and their sister have already signed up for the next trip. Like, it's like women. It's like this is, they're the greatest word of mouth <laughs> and networking that you could possibly have. Wow. And, and you've got this motto, unity without uniformity, which I picked up from one of your um, madrichim. How do you navigate the many challenges of engaging such a diverse group of Jewish women? This is something I've asked a lot of my colleagues, because everyone who comes to MGE also, reform, conservative, left, right, they're all over the place. What are, are there any principles, I don't know if you've written in any of your four books, or any teachings from the Torah that you found helpful in bringing unity to Jews from all backgrounds? Yes. So first of all, I feel like I did a disservice to your last question. My husband sometimes says, I hope my answer was long enough that you forgot your question. So you were <laughs> saying you had asked, you had asked, like, how do you measure success? Yeah, yeah. So I, I over yeah, go yeah. ahead. You know, but that's important. It's yeah. really important. So I, I was saying how it's easier to succeed in a way because we of you know the factors I told you, but we have four very, very clear goals. Number one, connect in everything we do. And we not only do the trips to Israel, we have tons of, we have, we have booths online, like live, live webinars. We have podcasts that are at the top of the charts in the Jewish podcast, which I'm sure yours is too. And we have, uh, we, we have like domestic retreats. If they couldn't come to Israel, we're starting to go to them. We have books, we have publications, we're coming out with an app, an international app. So we have a lot going on, but whatever we do, it's always, always around to achieve the four goals. And we're very data-driven, so we have outside measurement constantly, constantly. What are the four goals? Number one, connect to Jewish values. Connect to Jewish values. There's wisdom here. This is not dusty Bible stories. This is not men in robes going through sand dunes. This is about your life. There's wisdom in here to choose the right person to marry, to raise great kids, to have a great marriage, to realize your potential, to be successful in business. It's all in there. It was just never, ever, ever presented to us like this. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Number one, connected to Number two, if I look down, it's just because I'm taking some notes because I want to. No, hear no, no. I'm glad I see you're taking notes. Good. Number two, engage with Israel. Mm-hmm. It used to be, and I'm sure you know this, Rabbi, that the one thing that every Jew, no matter how connected or disconnected they were in, no matter how they voted, Israel was one thing we could all agree on, and that's over. That's over. So now it's to engage with Israel. To, to see it, to understand it, to understand our claim to it. We don't whitewash it. There's issues here, but there's, it's really to, 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 to bring that to, for they should fall in love with Israel and they should be able have to, to be empowered with knowledge to be able to stand up and advocate for Israel. Mm-hmm. But if you wait till their kids get on campus, it's too late. You want yeah. them to, to, ha- to bring that into their homes when their kids are younger. Number three, 
that you should um, take responsibility, take action. You, you have skills, you have talents. Like pour it into, like, I can't tell you the amount of women who have gone back, quit their jobs, and started working for the Jewish community, whether they're working for a federation or they're working for a Jewish school. It's they realize, like, you know, if we don't help the Jewish people, if we don't give tzedakah, if we don't put our resources into the Jewish people, it's not like the non-Jews are, are standing in line waiting to do it. If they're not. You should be proud that if you walk into any hospital in North America and you see on the plaques on the wall in the foyer, okay, they're all Jewish names. Not all, but a disproportionate amount are Jewish names. We should be proud of that. And we should give to non-Jewish causes. But if we don't prioritize the Jewish community, it's not like non-Jews are going to. Like it's really, it is only up to us. So they go back and that's a game changer. And our data shows that they are, they are now volunteering in the Jewish community, joining synagogues, putting their kids into... To set our, our long-term study shows that 26% of our women in a, in, a, uh, in a significant survey that we did, 26% of our women one year post-trip are putting their kids into Jewish day schools. Wow. That's a game changer. Yeah, that is a, a game changer. A kid goes into a Jewish day school, game changer. So if you think 20,000 women, uh, 2.5 kids per, per woman, and it's 26% are now in day school, that's no, a lot of kids. I've always said, just uh, before you get to number four, a lot of people have asked me how we, we at MGE measure success. And I've always said, it's not always in the participants themselves, it's the next generation. Because we actually have a Jewish tradition that we, Jewish continuity is grandchildren, third generation. So I will know if I was successful by, my, by the grandchildren of our participants. And we're just going through a whole bunch of bar bat mitzvahs of our alumni who become more connected. Wow. And wow. the amount wow. of day school is unbelievable. And it's with all the issues and problems of day school, it is, I just want, uh, I, I, ho I hope it's okay I'm using this. Please, <laughs> please, it's your show. <laughs> I can't emphasize this enough, how important it is, even if a parent decides not to become religiously observant, to give your kids the chance to have that knowledge and to have that basis. And there are problems and issues with day school and, and they're not perfect. But they're game changers in terms of Jewish continuity, game changers. The numbers are crazy different yep. in terms of intermarriage, yep. Jewish engagement, Israel yep. activism. Everything changes when you put your kids into that into, into, into that world. Anyway, I'm sorry, a little commercial there. Number four, you were saying, no, no, this is awesome. Okay, so number four is what you had brought up, which is to foster achdut below achidut, which is unity without uniformity. That one of the things that is killing the Jewish people is our, that we're divided, that we divided up into camps, that we can't get along. The one thing that has given me tremendous pleasure with Momentum is that organizations, like we'll have like in Toronto, I think we have seven different organi Jewish organizations who partner with us. I, I'm from Toronto. I promise you, these people never worked together before, ever. But under the umbrella of the Jewish mother, of the Jewish woman, somehow we're able to put our our differences aside and to come together because if we work together we can do so much more unfortunately and you know this and my experience in decades of jewish communal work that jewish organizations often look at other jewish organizations in their city you're my competition yeah they're not your competition they're your partner they just don't know it yet i wish i i wish i, I can't even tell you how great that would be in New York City. <laughs> Although, you know, um, we we work with whoever will work with us, basically. Um, but I, I found that, unfortunately, that the the rat race and competitive nature of, of, of the New York City business financial world has found its way into the Jewish community. It's very... I, I, Rabbi, I don't know if it gives you any comfort, but no matter what city I'm in, no matter what country I'm in, it's it's the nature of Jews that we don't play well together. We don't we don't like to play in the same sandbox. It's not just New York, and maybe the the competitiveness of New York throws gasoline on it. It's everywhere, even in a small a small town. They can't work together. It's unbelievable. And I have to tell you, and you know, it's clear in Tanakh. Bracha comes when there's achdut. Again, means we don't have to be the same in order to work together. In the Washington, D.C. area, we have we partner with the Federation, we partner with the JCC, we partner with Asia Torah. And when they go back, 
great. Like everybody for, for the uh, connected Jewish values. Okay. So go to Asia Torah and everybody can learn about values, leadership. Okay. Taking action. The Federation has unbelievable courses for that and engaging with Israel. The JCC is really the home for that in the Washington DC area. So if we, we everybody can do what they do best, but work together and yeah. you know what? Women love it. And the women are driving the togetherness because the women don't go back and feel like, oh, it's me and it's you. It's you. No, we're all momentum women. We're all momentum sisters. And that's helping drive the organization. So we're not going from the top down. We're going from the bottom up and creating change. Beautiful. Wow. These are gems. I got two, two last questions for you. Um, years ago, I'm told um, that you donated kidney to a woman you did not even know. Um, you said it was one of the greatest experiences of your life. Can you can you share that story? So I have to tell you, it wasn't even one of the greatest experiences of my life. It was the greatest experience of my life. And people often say to me, like, Lori, how can it be? Like, how can it be greater than having children? Because having a child is is really initially a selfish desire. I want a baby see my baby, okay? Very quickly we realize we're in it for them and they're not in it for us. As Rabbi, Rabbi Weinberg told us, if you had children for what they're gonna do for you, get an English butler, they're cheaper, okay? So you quickly realize, but the initial desire is actually a selfish desire. Donating my kidney to this woman, who I didn't know, who now I'm very close with, was the purest opportunity Hashem ever gave me to give just to give because even when we give to like somebody let's say um let's say a friend of mine um has a baby and so i everybody sends meals right so i sent a meal and then i have a baby and she doesn't send me a meal so i'm thinking hey when you had a baby i sent you a meal and you didn't send me a meal so even though when i sent her the meal it wasn't so what i'm going to get back but there's a part of us that kind of feels that the other person owes us when i Gabe, is that New York sirens? Yeah, that's New York. I'm going to mute it. Go. That's, that's, no, no, that's New York background. That's nice. Okay. So when, when I, when I, I, so, so there's, it's human nature that when we, we do a kindness, there's a part of us that kind of feels the other person owes us. Like you see this in marriage. Like I did this. So how come you don't do this? When, when somebody passes away, you, you know that, that when you participate in the burial, it's called a, a chesed shell MS. A chesed shall emet, like it's a, it's a kindness of truth. A kindness of truth? Why is that singled out? Because the person can't do anything back for you. It's yeah. just an act of giving. So this was to give sure. my kidney totally, totally to sure. somebody who I didn't know. No, like, what are you going to do for me? Like, you don't even know me. You know, if I gave it to somebody I knew, there'd be a part of me, like I always joke, like, you have a friend, her name is Ruth, and we live in the same community, and we, we used the carpool together. And imagine, God forbid, God forbid, Ruth needed a kidney. Of course I would give her my kidney. Now it's six months later and I'm speaking in LA and I call up Ruth. Ruth, you, you know, yeah, can you cover my carpool? I have to speak in LA this week. And she goes, you know what? I have a busy week. I can't cover your carpool. What am I thinking? You gave me, <laughs> I gave you my kidney. You can't cover my carpool. So I love the, the it's, it's like somebody owes me. I don't want anybody to feel they owe me anything. You need a kidney, take my kidney, have a good life, because then to hate, you don't owe me anything. Because it creates an imbalanced relationship when someone feels like the other person is owed. Wow. So it really was the most, it, I can't even tell you. Okay, I'll give you, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, how it happened, because it's too long a story. No, but but, but the, I do want to tell. Before you tell the story, I just think that point, I, I want our listeners to pay attention to that point, because I, I'm listening you know, how many opportunities do we have to give without receiving anything in return? You know, and uh, I, I remember my wife and I, when our oldest son, who's now Leon, her 24, when he was a little baby, we were in Meir Sharim, and he was crying, and, you know, he was hungry, and there was no other place to nurse, and this guy in this, sh like, um, dusty shop in Meir Sharim kicked everyone out of the store, so my wife would have a place to nurse and gave me the keys to lock him out and he pull up and when he came back and i had filled up the counter with all this stuff my wife's like you better buy something from this guy and <laughs> um and i he wouldn't let me buy anything and exactly what you just said he said he's like what's your name and i said my name is mark hebrew menachem 
He says, Menachem, I just did a chesed and I wanted to, I wanted to stay pure. And if I sell you these wow. items, and I was like, well, wow. I need a pair of tzitzis anyway. He's like, ah, there's a guy around the corner. He would not let me buy wow. it. Wow. I just think it's a very, it's an interesting thing. How many of us are looking for those opportunities not to get anything wow. back? Anyway, continue, please. Let's hear how this happened. So it's a long story how it happened, but it was like somebody we knew in Denver many, many years ago. We used to work in, in, in Denver, Colorado. Somebody we knew needed a kidney. And I had no idea. Like my husband said, like, you know how he wears a beeper? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, he's waiting for a kidney. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, he's, he's got whatever, some problem. He's waiting for a kidney. So that night I Googled like kidney, kidney disease, kidney, kidney donation, kidney society, because I didn't know anything. I knew I had kidneys somewhere in my body and I knew they were important, but I wasn't sure where they were, what they did and what, what this guy's going through. So as I was going and Googling around, because it turns out we have two, uh, we have two kidneys, four and a half ounces each, and they are in our, the, you know, in our backs, in the base of our, on either side of our spine. And they're filters. They filter. They, you take in all these things into your body and they, they filter. So they keep everything good inside your body and they filter out the toxins. And if they're not working properly, you get the, the toxins stay in your body and you get sicker and sicker and sicker. And um, so as I was going through on, on, on the site, I, I saw like, oh, the factors, if, would you make a good kidney donor? And that's not why I went on. I just went on to find out like what's going on with this guy. And, and as I'm going through the list, I'm like, check, 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 check. Oh my gosh, I could do this. Okay. I'm not too fat. I'm not too thin. I, I don't have diabetes in my family. I never had cancer. I, I uh, like all these reasons why, you know, and it's very blood driven. So I'm O positive, I'm O positive. And if you're an O in the kidney world, oh, sorry, sorry about that. If you're an O in the kidney world, you're a universal donor. Mm -hmm. O's can give to any blood type, but they can only receive from an O, okay? So, but most blood, most people, whatever your blood type is, what's your blood type, Rabbi? B. You're B, so you can only receive from an O or a B, and you can only give to a B. Got it? Right. right. Okay. So that's how most blood types work. So, but mm -hmm. O's, O's can give to any blood type, but they can only receive from an O. So it would be very bad for somebody who's an O to need a kidney, but to give a kidney, your O's, your O's, your person. Okay. Cause they can give to any blood type. So I'd gone to, you know, I'd offer to this man, well, maybe I could be your donor, but they, he was a very big man. And his doctor said, no way. Like they didn't feel my, my kidney could sustain him. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't even test me. And that was that. And then we moved out of Denver, we moved to the DC area. And then I got a random email, random, uh, in quotes, that said, uh, four-year-old Jewish boy needs a kidney. So I clicked on and I said, you know, to this, it was a forward of a forward of a forward. And I clicked on and I said, you know, I said, I actually looked into this a few months ago. I think I'd be a very good candidate. And they wrote back and they said, you know, Actually, he's too sick to get have the surgery, but would you be willing to be tested for somebody else? And that was my first moral dilemma. Okay, like man we know and love, take my kidney. Little boy, take my kidney. Right. For somebody I don't know. Complete. And then I thought, yeah. you know, some somebody knows them just because I don't know them. This is somebody's mother, somebody's daughter, somebody's sister, somebody's wife. So I wrote back and I said, I'd be willing to be tested. Anyway, that started a whole process yeah. where I ended up being tested through, uh, through, the, through Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx. They have a kidney donation center that's actually run by a Shomer Shabbat Jew. Okay. And uh, I was tested for three women. I matched one of them. I was a good match for one of them. A mother, you know, <laughs> I was down to two women. And somebody said, how do you know these people are even Jewish? Well, that wasn't a condition at the time. And I said, and I, cause I asked them like, so could you tell me anything about these women? And they said, well, one lives in Brooklyn and has nine children and one lives in, in Muncie and has seven children. Okay. So do the math. So not only they're Jewish, but they're religious. That was just the hashkacha that happened along the way. It's so much hashkacha. Anyway, I ended up donating my kidney to this woman, the, the mother of seven in, in, um, in Muncie. And I only met her a couple of days before the surgery. And I have to tell you like, we are, you know, around the same age and same kind of energy, and we've become very, very close. She comes to my simchas, I go to hers. The first simcha that we shared was two years after the surgery. She invited me to her daughter's wedding. 
Oh. Of course, I traveled to her daughter's wedding. Oh. Rabbi, how do you think I felt? Oh, I mean, like... To see her under the chuppah with her daughter, after the ceremony, they all leave the chuppah, and this woman runs into my arms crying, thanking me for letting her live to see this day. Right. What, what amount of money would I, I have taken to trade that moment? What, what, what material possession, what experience could be greater? There are no words to describe the pleasure I felt. Like there are no words to see her dance with her daughter at her daughter's wedding. You know, when I tell the story and it's, yeah, I usually tell it in a much longer way, but along the way, because there was so much to learn. And I always tell her, I got more out of it than you did. She goes, no, I got more out of it than you did. And I tell people, even if you're not going to give away your kidney, be a giver because givers are happy people. Takers are happy at the moment. They got what they wanted, but in the long run, givers are happy people. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, I have a, a chapter in my first book on happiness about all the statistics. It seems like it's counterintuitive that because when we feel unhappy in life, we, we hunker down and we, we try to give ourselves. We think that's going to make us happy or happier or deal with the situation. And it's, it's strange that, you know, giving something up like a kidney or, I mean, something that's so important would, would bring such joy and happiness. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, You're welcome. I have to tell you, I asked Dr. Greenstein, who is that, that I said the Shomer Shabbat Jew, who is the head, 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 head of the, the kidney clinic at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx, I said to him, I said, if you could live a perfectly healthy life with one kidney, why would God give you two? He said one to keep and one to give away. Yeah. yeah. The only regret that any kidney donor has, and I'm in that kidney world, the only regret that I've ever heard is that you can't do it again. Because <laughs> if you could, you would. <laughs> God, you sh this should be a commercial. Someone should take the segment and just put it out there because uh, what a huge mitzvah to save a life. Um, you made Aliyah recently, and it sounds like um, you wanted to do this a long time, but you finally got around to doing it. And you get to keep your dream job. I mean, like, what, what, what's, what's better? Uh, tell us what inspired you. What, what, what's, what's it been like? So I have to tell you that um, ever since I landed in Israel, back in when I said, like, I think the first time was when I was traveling around through Europe again in at probably 1983, 1984, I just knew like there, there was something, like I said, I, I, I just knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life here, but I didn't make any sense. So as I grew in my Jewish journey and you see the more, the more educated and empowered and committed you are to your Judaism, the more connected you feel to Israel, like Pew shows that too. So it was always a dream to come back. Um, it always, always, my husband will tell you, I never gave up for a day that we were coming back. We thought when we first left after being married for a few months, we thought we were coming back three, in three years, but Hashem had other plans. It really took like 32, 33 years. And I never gave up for a day, ever. Never gave up for a day that we're going back. And everything I did, whether it was recovering the couch, okay, like what material would, would do well in Israel or even being called after our first baby was born, I said to my husband, I go, what are we? Are we mommy and Tati? Are we mommy and daddy? Or, he goes, are we serious about living in Israel? And I said, yes. He goes, we're Ima and Abba. Mm -hmm. So even what we're going to be called, everything was, everything was geared to Israel. And somebody said to me, if you can't be there now, send them ahead. So our kids were always like, you know, post high school going to Israel. Our son was a Chaya Boded, a lone soldier in Israel. Uh -huh. We always told our kids their whole life. One day, Ima and Abba are going to live in Israel. This is not your home where we're living here. Okay, this is nice. And we're here for a reason. And we're here to do a job. But this is not your home. Israel's your home. So most of my kids were like rolling their eyes and like Ima the Zionist, okay? Because <laughs> you're, you're never a star in your own hometown. Mm -hmm. But obviously, it got through to them because three out of five, actually the three who had never planned to, come, to move to Israel, are, live here. Oh, and I, I said that one day we're going to live in Israel. We hope you do too. And if you don't live in Israel, we hope you visit. But this is not the goal line. Israel's the goal line. And I, 
for me, traveling around the world and dealing with Jews in all these different communities and countries and seeing the rise of anti-Semitism and seeing the rise of assimilation and seeing the the really America basically falling apart. <laughs> like it's like Israel, like America had a good run, but and seeing the rise of Israel in terms of technology and the economy and, and everything that's going on here, it's so clear to me, like when Hashem shut down the whole world with a little germ and put us all in timeout. And why do you put your kids in timeout? You put them in timeout because they're obviously not acting at their best. And to come off of the stairs or to come out of your room, uh, coming out of COVID, to say, let's just go back to the way it was. I just want things to be normal. If we do that, this was for nothing. We have to come out better people committed to making a better world. And we have to see, read the writing on the wall. And the writing is not left to right. It's really right to left. And it's very clear what's going on. And and people's homes are worth, around the world, Jewish people, your homes are worth a ridiculous amount of money. You can come with your riches or you can come with a shirt on your back. But there is a destiny that the Jewish people have. And like what, what's happening? Uh, you muted yourself, Laurie. I think you muted yourself. Okay, sorry, my um, died. So I think God was saying, "Tone it down, Lori. Okay, let's dial this down." So because I just feel very, um, I feel very, very blessed that again you have to. Want, some of my friends will say, "Like, how did you finally get back to Israel?" I say, "Number one, you have to want it like crazy. You have to want it like crazy." Every Shabbat afternoon, I would look at my house. I would take this. I would give this away. I would sell this. I would take this. I never, ever, 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 ever gave up. And when the opportunity came to be able to move here, when we it was clear, the hashkacha that, that happened in our lives, it was like, let's do it. And we are feel so, so, so fortunate. Many of our friends and peers are either done the same or are planning to do the same because some people really got it during COVID. Like, you know, when... Like Hashem did reverse psychology. Now you can't come to Israel. Right. <laughs> so now people want to come. And um, I have to tell you, Rabbi, before yeah. COVID, before all of this happened, because I'm traveling around the world, and I would meet with the leaders of the communities, of the Jewish communities I'm speaking in. I remember being in Madrid and meeting, you know, meeting with them. And I would say, like, how's the anti-Semitism here? They go, oh, not good, not good. Oh, but it's worse in France and it's worse here. And everybody's pointing there. And they would always end with the same basic uh, sum, summing up. Thank God we have Israel because right. we can always get on a plane. And I would say to them, don't you think the planes can stop flying? And then they did. Yeah. Yeah, when I was a kid and my parents, I wasn't good. My dad, he should live and be well, would say, I'm not going to bring you to shul with me. And it was so smart. <laughs> and I feel I feel like for the first time during COVID, um, I have two boys um, in Israel. Um, one is in his gap year, and the other one is basically living there at this point. And um, it was very, very difficult. You know, diaspora Jews really felt cut off. I felt so cut off from Israel for the first time because I, I go very often and um, and it's a big disconnect for me. It's very, very difficult. If you're a student of Jewish history, living anywhere other than Israel right now is difficult to kind of, you know, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance and um, there's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. But I also believe, as you said, we've got a job to do wherever we are. And, um, you know, Rav Hirsch, the great German Jewish philosopher once asked, why was the Torah not given in Israel? Why would it be given in an arid desert in the middle of nowhere? And that's to teach that the Torah can be kept anywhere and everywhere. No one should say, well, I'm not in Israel. I'm in New York. So, you know, I'll leave the, I'll leave the Torah for the Jews in Israel. So obviously Torah and mitzvot is for everyone everywhere. Um, but the ideal place, as you said, and I think you said it in the very, very beginning, you know, your soul can only get to where it needs to be in, in a certain kind of environment. And, um, I really just want to express uh, just Hakara Satov to you, Laurie, not only for coming on here, but for doing the holy, incredible work that you're doing, because bringing moms to Israel, and now we didn't even talk about it, but just so you know, you know I, I'm friends with Charlie Harari and Saul Blinkoff. These are 
you know, and they're they're bringing the husbands now. Yeah. They're bringing the husbands, but uh, if you look at the word momentum, the first three letters are mom, and then it's men. <laughs> Our it. hashtag is it starts with women. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Everything starts with women, and I'll end with this though. And and I'm I I really wanted to share this with you in particular that you know the Talmud says that the schut nashim tzidkaniot that in the merit of the great and righteous women nigalu Yisrael the Jewish people were redeemed. It's one of the reasons why women are obligated and to participate in the, in many of the mitzvot of the Seder, even though they're technically mitzvot shazman grama, these are positive mitzvot that are time-bound, which women are technically exempt. But you don't see women refraining from the mitzvot of the Seder because the geula, the redemption, our past redemption took place through the women. And we all know that the future future redemption is going to happen the same way and you are leading the charge, Lori. I, I, it's, it's a zechut and really a merit to know you. Hashem should bless you. I'm sorry about the. <laughs> okay, I like the siren is a wake up call. Sirens <laughs> in the background, but God should bless you. You should continue to bring women and men to Israel. Um, it, it, you, I'll talk to you next time. It'll be up to thirty or forty thousand. Please, God. Amen, amen. Bless the world with healing. Get rid of this COVID completely, so we can bring more people to Israel. And you should just be inspired and keep pumped to keep doing the incredible, incredible work that you're doing. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for the opportunity to share this. And uh, I'm a big fan of your work there. And when you do end up coming and moving to Israel, don't come alone. Bring them with you. <laughs> amen. 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 Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. And just keep up the amazing, amazing work. And thank anyone, you. by the way, just listening, uh, Lori's works, her, her books, Friday Night and Beyond, Gossip, remember my soul, turn your husband into your soulmate. And if you know of anyone or you're listening or your mom wants to go to Israel on a great trip, MG is primarily for 20s and 30s. And you should know, Lori, that um, one a number of the groups that I've spoken to of your returnees from Momentum, they've come with their kids. I love that because that's real continuity. They brought their kids to MGE in their 20s because they the parents, the mom has become so pumped. You know, and it's funny because I've always been operating. I know we're supposed to end here. This is a takes me a while to land. But, um, you know, the Pusik says that the, the, the children are going to bring back the parents, when, which I've seen for many, many years, young men and women in their 20s and 30s returning to Judaism and then bringing, schlepping their parents along. You're doing the opposite or backwards, both ways should continue to work together just to do great things for Kalal Yisrael. Thank you so much amen, for Amen, amen, Rabbi. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.